welcome to the Old Soul Movie Podcast, your number one spot for classic movie rewatches and breakdowns. My name is Jack Oremus, and I'm here with my sister, Emma Oremus. We decided that we wanted to make a show that reflected our love and appreciation for classic movies. And while you're here, hopefully we can share that together as an Old Soul family. We're going to be diving into these movies scene by scene and giving our modern reactions to the films that have influenced generations of people. There will be fun facts, hot takes, tears, laughter, and everything in between. And with that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to another exciting episode of the Old Soul Movie Podcast. And today we're going to be talking about a legendary movie, one that we've been waiting a long time to do. Can't wait to actually get into it. Some like it hot. Emma, how are you on this quarantined Saturday afternoon? Oh, it's a beautiful quarantine Saturday. I have just been enjoying the view outside my window And (laughs) I did take a walk outside. That was pleasant. They let me out of my cage. (laughs) And yeah, I'm so excited to get into this film. It is a whopper. It's one of my favorite films of all time ever. One of my favorite comedies of all time. You guys will hear, (laughs) we're about to embark on this journey for why I love this movie so much, but I'm absolutely so thrilled and excited. Oh yeah, this one's going to be pretty long. Uh, it might end up being a three-parter, we'll see, but we uh, we can't wait to dive into it. Before we go any further though, I always say this at the end, I never mention it at the beginning, but if you are listening to this, go down, subscribe, rate us five stars, share with a friend. If you don't do that already, please do it now. But, oh my goodness, I cannot wait to get into this. Emma, when was the last time, the first time and the last time that you watched this movie? Oh my gosh. First time, I don't know, probably 10 years old. Out the womb. <laughs> I was so young. I probably didn't even get half of everything. Uh, but yeah, I was really young when I first saw this and I think I watch it at least once a year. It's just one of my favorites. I, I love it. I don't know how else to put it. Um, I do have a small collection of movie posters, not super nice ones. Only one is like an authentic vintage one. Um, but I do collect movie posters and this is one of them (laughs) yeah i was gonna say the last time that i watched this movie was on the big screen in my cinema class cinema 190 uh my freshman year so that was about three years ago i want to say i probably watched it last six months ago yeah yeah (laughs) i I feel like i had but that was the last really memorable time that uh i can recall just because it was on such a big big screen if um i don't know if anyone out there follows fathom events this isn't like a promotion for them or anything but i enjoy when they show old movies on the big screen and if they ever do this one in theaters and if we're allowed in theaters again i will so be there (laughs) to watch it definitely i i wish that theaters did that more often and maybe after all this is said and done we'll be able to sort of get creative with mixing older movies with all these newer feature films coming out but Oh, oh my gosh. Where do we even begin? Some Like a Hot. It's a 1959 black and white romantic comedy film directed and produced by Billy Wilder. It stars Marilyn Monroe, Tony Curtis, and one of our favorites. We talked about him last week, Jack Lemmon. Ooh, Emma. We have a lot. Um, um, George Raft is in it. Joey Brown. Yeah. Nehemia Persoff. There's actually, it's quite a lineup. It's an 
awesome cast, awesome director, awesome writers. Billy Wilder is brilliant. He just is one of my favorite directors. I think he does, he just, you know what he does? He does a great job of understanding society at the time and he gets people and their inner workings and does a really good job of making characters come to life so that you can relate to them and love them and love them for all their flaws. Right. I think he does a a great job of making sure multiple messages sort of come out of whatever a scene is conveying. It's not just, you know, the black and white, literally of like this movie, the black and white of what you see, but all the sort of gray areas as well. So let's start with the title though. Just some like it hot in general. Emma, what What does that even mean? Yeah, Some Like a Hot is a reference to music. The title refers to the modern or contemporary description for jazz music. And instead of playing it as written, which is like the music notes as written, that's considered straight or sweet. Um, If you go kind of rogue, (laughs) instead of going straight towards the music sheets, that's called hot. So the improvised version of what's on the sheet. And what I like about that, too, is the improvisation of these two guys just being women. Like, it's not just talking about jazz, but it's talking about them improvising literally their every move. Starting from, I mean, every aspect of the plot, I feel like is just one improv moment after another. Maybe not within the script, but for what the characters are doing. So... That is brilliant about the title because, again, some people like it off the beaten path or different from the norm is essentially what Some Like It Hot is suggesting in terms of music. But then if you look at it in terms of this being a gender-bending movie, and to be honest, I think this is the first real major gender-bending film. Again, we're getting that theme of people deviating from their gendered norms. So, yeah, this was a super dynamic film. and. I I can't think of one done before where this theme of wearing clothes that are different from your assigned gender is so prominently featured. Yes, agree. And, I mean, there's others, so many others after. I mean, like Tootsie, obviously, White Chicks, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty much based off this. And yeah, a ton. Oh, she's she's the man. The birdcage. Uh, like oh yeah wait what's um what's the one about the girl in high school just one of the guys something like that she's trying to get like a good internship yeah. and she goes undercover as a guy at the rival high school <laughs> okay yeah. someone you yeah. know what I'm talking about yeah. someone but out the there. plot the plot has influenced a lot of movies Mrs Doubtfire there's yeah. so many so many gender bending qualities and yes this is to me kind of the start of that all and. It's actually almost different from the other ones, too, because I don't think it's necessarily making fun of the other gender. I think it's like genuinely explorative. So that's what's really cool about the movie, too. And just, I think, overall understanding. I think that for me was the coolest thing. Yeah. Just like the the switch of mindset sort of from the beginning to the end, actually, you know, walking a mile in the other gender shoes i think it was awesome so and it's hilarious it's hilarious yeah, oh as all heck oh my god it's so funny like if you this guys movie yeah. puts a smile on my face there's, <laughs> there, there's simply yeah. put there's so many lines that i forgot from the last time that i saw it and i was just cackling over here by myself uh, i felt so lame but it's just it's such a funny movie it holds up so well it has aged tremendously well yeah. i actually think that this is one of the mm, probably one of the best 
long term or you know what I mean it yeah. crosses decades without feeling dated yeah and like the humor is so fresh I mean a lot of people consider it the best comedy of all time it's not just it is very much yeah. <laughs> it's very much considered the best comedy of all time yeah yeah so I mean that's what AFI says don't just take our word for it but yeah I mean <laughs> BBC I know did some sort of poll in 2017 where they they had over 250 film critics vote from over 52 countries and even then it came out on top as the best comedy of all time so uh it's beloved it's not just a united states thing it's truly a worldwide treasure so i think that's that's really the cool thing about it and it was premiered at the 75th venice film festival it was one of the yeah it was one of the restored movies there it didn't win some italian movie won unfortunately but (laughs) um still nonetheless you know what at the end of the day we remember the title of this one i don't i don't know the title of the other one and to me that's what matters fan favorite (laughs) i love this movie i think it's so terrific and it it really did change the industry i know that kind of sounds extreme but to me this is the one that really drove home the end of the motion picture production code, which is also known as the Hayes Code. So you guys have heard us talk here and there about um, film codes and things being allowed on screen and not on screen. And it was the guidelines that movies were supposed to abide by, really. And this was produced without the approval of the motion picture production code because of the idea of cross-dressing or dressing in drag, if you will, or even the idea of people being gay, uh, which really isn't part of this. Uh, But then again, there's so many fears and mislabels back in 1959, 1960, where that wasn't really understood. But this really, like the code had been repeatedly disregarded as the 50s progressed and this was kind of like 1959 final one and yeah the code actually existed from 1934 to 1968 and it was officially enforced until then and then uh november 1st 1968 is when the guidelines that we know the mpaa film rating system which is what we know as rated g pg pg 13 r that's actually pg 13 didn't come out for a while mm-hmm. but our um x like all those ratings that we're familiar with today was as a result of the motion picture production code failing and i think that this movie really played a huge part in that yeah i think what's interesting is the sort of idea the screenplay, the original screenplay that was adapted by Billy Wilder in IAL Diamond was from 1935. It was yes. the French film Fanfare of Love, which was written mm-hmm. by Robert Theron and Michael Logan. But the plot was slightly different. Yeah, it was slightly different, which, you know, and they made it fit to a modern audience. Yeah, unbelievable. Like they had to have motives that you could actually see happening in real life yeah that's what i loved especially the call that poverty wasn't enough to be a driving force for these men to make this action right. and i love that they did the incorporation of the mafia and i love i think it was a brilliant choice to set it in the 20s i oh. love a period piece <laughs> so it was uh, so many great decisions. It tied together so nicely. I cannot commend Billy Wilder and IAL Diamond enough for their 
work on the screenplay for this film. It was, it's terrific. Everything fit together kind of like that Larry David Curb Your Enthusiasm y right. way where every little thing ended up being pretty much tied together. Mm-hmm. So, so cool. Yeah, IAL Diamond, for those of you that may be not familiar, he also wrote the screenplay for The Apartment, which also starred Jack Lemon. We mentioned it last week. And Fortune Cookie, which I believe was nominated for an award or two. And Billy Wilder, <laughs> amazing. There's so many yeah. projects, but just to name a few, he was involved in The Apartment as well. He did the Humphrey Brogart, Audrey Hepburn film, Sabrina, Sunset Boulevard, Love in the Afternoon, which um, also has Audrey Hepburn in it, Seven Year Itch, which has Marilyn Monroe in it, they collabed before, and The Lost Weekend, also a pretty prominent film. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, sometimes I forget that it was made in 1959 because it's so well done and it so accurately depicts the 20s, or at least in, in, in my <laughs> 2020 quarantine <laughs> view. She's almost a century later. Wow, I can't can't believe that. But like I think sometimes that this is either made in the late 40s or the early 50s. Or like more so when black and white pictures were more common. I forget that this was when like there were a lot of colorized movies out there. So Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's what's unique about this too. Um once you get into the late 50s early 60s-ish, there's definitely kind of a muddy area of those that actually the option to do black and white or color. So, and this wasn't the only one that was done in black and white. As we all uh, know, Psycho, which was came out in 1960, was also famously done in black and white because that was the platform that Hitchcock thought would better show his story. And sometimes I think black and white just does promote a story better. And to be honest, I think when you have something in black and white, you can kind of focus on the script a little better, in my opinion. So I think when you do have such a dynamic or interesting story, I do think that if you kind of take away some, and I know color is a major distractor, but if you kind of strip it down even more, you can get to the heart of the story. So I think that's what's cool about this. And I I mean, it's so appropriate too. In the 20s, it was all black and white films. So I love that they just paid homage and made it period appropriate by keeping it black and white yeah two things kind of stand out to me from what you just said obviously it was in black and white but the fact that it was nominated for best cinematography for the academy awards i think to to have that for a black and white movie awesome i love seeing that and the psycho connection i cannot believe after doing some research that anthony perkins auditioned for the role of daphne like could you imagine anthony perkins as you know what I kind of could, to be totally yeah. honest. He has kind of that softer yeah. feel to him. Yeah. His his masculinity isn't so hyper. It's a little more toned down. I can see it, but I think that this role really needed a funny guy. Other actors potentially up for the Jerry Daphne role were Frank Sinatra, Danny Kaye, and Bob Hope. Of course, I think Danny Kaye would have killed it. I think Danny Kaye pretty much nails anything that requires a sense of humor. I think he's one of the funniest mans of all time. So I think he would have been awesome. I actually think Frank Sinatra would have been good, but I almost see him a little bit more for the Joe Josephine role, to be honest. I see that too. Um, And I do actually, I think Bob Hope would have been good too, but out of all the options, if like Jack Lemmon had to be pulled out for last minute reasons, I think Danny Kaye would have nailed it. Yeah, I agree on the Danny Kaye 100%. I would have loved to have seen it, but I mean, Jack Lemmon is 
perfect too. I oh, I can't wait to talk more about him later on. This was a game changer for him, really. It was huge. Yeah, no, it really was. And to think that so many people probably passed up on it before Jack got the role. You know, like it really was this sort of serendipitous moment for him in his career. And it really set the stage for everything after it, which you can find out more on last week's podcast. If you haven't listened to it, tune up. It'll seriously make this movie so much better. It made it even that much better for me. So this is a near perfect film for me. I I think it's got everything. It's funny. It's got romance. There's a little bit of action, thrills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. action, chills, thrills, I, spills, and <laughs> what was it? Thrills and yeah, you you know, watch them. Yeah, um, yeah. And the, we're talking about the train scene in the movie. Uh, for those, yeah. So yeah, I just love this movie so much. Again, back to Billy Wilder, he did amazing. This was the only film of 1959 to be Oscar nominated for director, but not best picture. Crazy. And to be honest, I feel I feel like comedies, even today, comedies aren't really a big contender for best picture. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, as long as we're talking about awards, at the uh, Academy Awards of 1960, it won. Oscar for Best Costume, which was won by Ori Kelly. Oh, my goodness. I have that note. Ori Kelly, you guys, prolific costume designer. The costumes in this film are stunning. They also had to require the costumes to be custom made because these men, their bodies weren't um, appropriate for the women's clothing that they had around so they had to custom make things ori kelly for those of you that don't know or aren't familiar he did the costume design for an american in paris also incredibly beautiful costumes casablanca hey we've talked about them um maltese falcon right and angels with dirty faces which may have been the inspiration behind that fake movie in Home Alone. Oh, right. Yeah. So we're making a lot of circles here with Ori Kelly. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And he's got a, a crazy story. I was falling into this Wikipedia trap of looking into his background. I mean, that in itself is just crazy. But the costumes on Marilyn Monroe are just stunning in this. Gorgeous. They're probably one of my favorite costumes of all time. They're definitely my favorite costumes on her in any movie. Yes. And I know that includes Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Hot take, as the kids say. Hot take. But <laughs> I really, I think the costumes in this film are incredible on everyone, not just her, but especially her. Yeah, and apparently Tony Curtis had that caboose. <laughs> he sure did. Yeah, he uh, apparently had a better butt than Marilyn Monroe, according to Ori Kelly. But I'll let you guys look deeper into that fun fact. I'm not going <laughs> to. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Marilyn Monroe's boobs are better than Tony Curtis's. <laughs> yeah, big shock there. But um, but yeah, I mean, it was also nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role for our man, Jack Lemmon, Best Director. So deserved. Yeah. So deserved. Oh, Amazing. 100%. 100%. Uh, best, He's maybe yeah. my favorite in this whole... F- I think he does the best acting in this film. I think they are, they're all stellar or else it wouldn't be my favorite film. He had, but he yeah. just, he nails it. He had so many moments. I was taking notes, like I do, and I couldn't note all of them down. Like, we would talk for four hours, so... I mean, we already talk long as it is, but I'm sorry, guys. I, you just can't avoid it. Like, you have to see this movie. Um, Jack Lemmon is just hysterical. Like, he's so embraced yeah. dressing up like a woman. It was so cool to watch. And if it had been with this super just hotty totty guy that 
felt like he was too good for it or scoffed upon it, it wouldn't have worked. But because you had such a cool, easygoing, fun, adventurous guy in there, that's why it works. The thing that I love the most about it was that I felt like the actors outside of their characters really felt that way about who they were playing. Like Jack Lemmon, Daphne embraces it, you know, all about it. I'm Daphne. (laughs) And Joe, Josephine, Tony Curtis is like kind of timid about it. Not sure really how it was going to go. And it kind of, and everyone was saying it came across hyper feminine, like that um, Tony Curtis came off so feminine. He's just like, I don't know. That's just my body language. It was a little hard. I don't know. Yeah, but they balance each other so well. If they were both like that, it wouldn't work, you know? You know what I mean? Right. So I think that that... I like the contrast. Yeah, it plays into it so nicely, so... Uh, Complement each other very well. Yeah, amazing, amazing stuff. Don't just take our word for it. On IMDb, it has an 8.2 out of 10 rating from over 230,000 users. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 95% from 59 critic reviews and a 94% audience score from 82,220 user ratings. 91% of Google users like this movie, and Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars and said, it is one of the enduring treasures of the movies, a film of inspiration and meticulous craft. What praise? Yeah, exactly. This movie's on a lot of lists of movies you have to see before you die. And if I had to make that list, 100% this is on it. It's near the top, too. Oh, yeah. Easily top 10. Easily. Top five. Pretty solid. <laughs> like, for most people. I'm saying on my personal list, I'm kind of lame and I have some 90s movies. We've talked about it. We'll get to them. But It's like, not lame. There's art in every era. Yeah, but this... It's essential. Like, you, there's no way around it. And there's, yes, it's an awesome movie that came across. The final product was amazing. Of course, as a lot of people know, there was a lot of trouble behind the scenes, especially with Miss Monroe. Yeah, this is a very interesting look into Marilyn Monroe, like the production from a production point of view. It's a very interesting look at her life and what was going on with her. So as I just mentioned a little bit ago, Marilyn Monroe and Billy Wilder worked together in the 1955 film, The Seven Year Itch, which is the iconic movie of her with her um, skirt being blown up from the subway great exhaust. And yeah, iconic movie. To my knowledge, that went pretty smoothly. However, I want to give you guys a little bit of an idea of what was happening in Marilyn Monroe's life at the time that paralleled and kind of carried over and spilled over into her professional life. So it is kind of crazy. By the mid-50s, I mean, she was Marilyn Monroe, like this big deal. She had been in so many films. And in, um, I think it was 1956, she married Arthur Miller, the playwright. So that was kind of a crazy change. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, he's this super academic playwright. And she is this hot bombshell girl. It was such an odd couple, but he really influenced things and how they went for her and how things were written for her. So I want to talk about a little movie called The Prince and the Showgirl which I think really impacted her professional work ethic, I guess, going forward. So Marilyn Monroe uh, was married to Arthur Miller, and then she signed on to do The Prince and the Showgirl in 56. It came out in 57. Prince and the Showgirl was produced, directed, and co-starred Laurence Olivier. And this was really 
interesting. I, from what I've heard, he, well, Lawrence Olivier is definitely perfectionist. I've heard that he was, I guess, condescending or patronizing towards her or being very hard on her during production. And she really pushed back in terms of if you're, if you're not going to treat me nice, I'm not going to treat this production nice. They had so many issues between them. I don't know if you've ever seen The Prince and the Show, girl. It's quite a film, actually. It's actually really interesting. It didn't do great in the States, but it did do pretty well in Europe. And to be totally honest, I do think it has a little bit more of a European flair, European sense of humor to it. It's a little like, it's just not super American. And yeah. So after that, she went on an 18 month hiatus to focus on family and herself. And this was her first movie back after 18 months of not working. And after, um, I believe several miscarriages and trouble yeah. with endometriosis. And she was actually pregnant during this production. That pregnancy resulted in a miscarriage. So Things were extremely hard on her. She had begun being dependent or overusing her pharmaceuticals and really struggled. And Arthur Miller became really involved on set. Her acting coach, Paul Strasberg, became really involved on her acting set because they were trying to rewrite things and keep it together for her. And it was going very difficult So that's what was kind of happening in her life at the time. I also want to point out, and we'll definitely one day when we're ready to tackle this big kahuna, um, tackle Marilyn Monroe and do an actress spotlight on her. Oh, my God. But it's (laughs) fascinating. You know what? She definitely had this, of course, as we all know, she had this perception as being a dumb blonde. And I don't think that could be farther from the truth. I think she was extremely intelligent. She definitely knew how to play a part and use her wits and to make things work for her. And Gentlemen Prefer Blondes was kind of the first like dumb blonde role when she played Laura Lee. Yes, I love that movie. But that's where she kind of went, I feel like, definitely into that. Yeah, typecast, stereotype. And before that, she had been in a, actually a variety of films. She was in some film noirs. She was in the thriller, um, I believe it's called Don't Come A-Knocking or Don't Come Knocking, where she kind of plays a disturbed babysitter. That's a difficult role, actually. So she had a lot going for her. And I totally, totally will fight off anyone that says she couldn't sing. She definitely could sing. Yeah. I. No, is she a powerhouse voice? No, but she can absolutely carry a tune and she made her voice very soft and feminine and it's very appropriate to what was in style at the time, in my opinion. Anyway, end of that rant. But yeah, so it's really interesting. You just see her starting to get typecasted into these dumb blonde roles. Oh, then she was in How to Marry a Millionaire, another kind of dumb blonde role. And this was yet another dumb blonde role and she didn't really want to do it because she's like, I don't want to play someone that can't tell that these are two men. To be fair, no one else in the movie can tell that they're two men. Right. But I totally see where she's coming from. She was ready for something different. She was ready for that breakfast at Tiffany's-esque role, and it just wasn't happening for her. So you see frustration with not going forward in her career. You can see her kind of coming off a project that did not go very well in terms of working styles with someone else. And then that just carried over with personal life of tragedies, of miscarriages, and epcotic pregnancies. And it's it's tragic. It's really tragic. And that's where her mindset was during this film. Right. I mean, it was it was so hard for her on set. And she had a lot of eccentricities 
I think Jack Lemon was one of the few who I think really forgave her for it. He even said that she might not have had the most talent, but she brought more of her gifts to the screen than anyone he ever knew. Like as far as just maximizing what she had, I think no one can question that. Oh, 100%. And I mean, it takes brains to do that. I mean, it took brains. That's what's kind of her trademark, too, is she would say these kind of like sexual things and sexual innuendo things with such an innocent voice. But it takes a really strong actor to do that, in my opinion, or else you sound like either A, you know what you're talking about, or B, it doesn't sound sexy. And she was able to do that. So very cool. I'll never, well, I guess. I can't say I'll never forget because I've clearly forgotten it, but there was this show once (laughs) on HGTV and there was a woman. If anyone knows this, please write a comment because I would love to know where I got this from, but I definitely saw it on TV. There was a woman in New Mexico or Arizona, like she had a really cool house and it was features a cool house on a cool house show. And she said Marilyn Monroe stayed with her and she said that Marilyn Monroe was brilliant like just knew the industry, knew how to play up her sexuality, but also come across however she needed to come across. It's fascinating. She's a fascinating person. And to be totally honest, to marry Arthur Miller, like I don't, Arthur Miller was a very intelligent guy. I don't think he would marry someone significantly dumber than him. I really don't. I think he would be so unstimulated. Yeah. I think a big part of it is just having that self-awareness. And I think that's a huge part of intelligence, actually, is just knowing who you are, knowing what you have, and then getting the most out of it. So yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a very common misconception that she is like the characters that she Uh, she plays in a lot of these films but I can't wait to dive deeper into her career on an actress spotlight in the future I know that's gonna be a at least a two-parter for sure so yeah (laughs) I'm sure we'll get a lot of demands and we'll I mean we'll keep on exploring Marilyn through this um, episode but yeah we'll definitely do a big 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 breakdown of her life and personal and professional history at some point in time yeah and as always, you already know the drill, but if you don't know what this movie is about, it's about a pair of jazz musicians, Joe and Jerry, who witness a mafia murder and are forced to escape Chicago with their lives. Disguising themselves as women, they join an all-female jazz band and hop a train heading for Florida. Joe starts to fall for the band's sultry lead singer, while Jerry starts being courted by a millionaire, all while the mobsters close in on them. So, Emma, before we get into this rewatch, this absolutely bonkers rewatch is there anything else that you would like to preface to prep this audience for before we get into it oh gosh well i think we'll get into things as we go along hopefully we don't forget anything there's so much i want to cover but yeah i just want to open it up to the community if you know things or if we miss something please let us know in comments on social media and yeah talk about it with the community because this movie has so much going for it and it deserves to be discussed and praised and fawned over and shared and all that stuff definitely so guys with that we will be right back after a very quick break strap in the seat belts it's magic time <laughs> 